Good morning again. Uh, so we have finally come to our sixth and final week in our Genesis 2 series on the life of Abraham. And we're finishing today with what might be uh, the most famous story from Abraham's life, the offering of Isaac. Now, this is an exceptionally difficult story. Uh, We've looked at some tough, tough stories in this series, but I would say this one takes the cake far and away. In fact, I would say if you hear this story and it doesn't provoke any wrestling in your heart or any tough questions, I don't think you're really paying attention. And so this morning, I want to encourage us to pay attention and then to let the questions in, to wrestle with those questions, and hopefully come to a place of better understanding. So that means we've got a lot to talk about. So let's not waste any time. Let's dive right in. We're reading from Genesis 22, starting in verse 1. So if you want to follow along in your own Bible, uh, you can turn there now. And just to set the stage here so we know where we are in the story, Uh, This is after Isaac has been born, obviously. Uh, If you remember, uh, Abraham was given a promise when he was 75 years old, so he's no spring chicken, uh, that he is going to have descendants. But of course, at the time, the problem was he had no descendants at all. He was told he was going to have so many descendants that they were going to become a great nation. He was going to be the father of a great nation. And so Abraham waited somewhat patiently uh, for 25 years until finally Isaac was born, the child of the promise. And this story, we don't know exactly how long it takes place after Isaac's birth, but we have reason to believe that Isaac is probably at least in his teen years at this point. He's not a little kid. Uh, You might be familiar with the story, and you might envision in your mind, you know, a little toddler or something like that, or even an infant uh, but that's not the case. Uh, you'll, you'll see when we read this story that Isaac is given a bunch of wood to carry up a mountain. And I don't know, if you're a little kid, you probably can't do that. So we have reason to believe Isaac is at least a teenager. So lock that into your mind. That's where we are, okay? And uh, before we get into this, let's say a quick prayer. Bow our heads and pray. Lord Jesus, we invite your Holy Spirit to guide our thinking about this passage, about this story. Um, Lord, we recognize that it's a tough story, and we pray that uh, we would not be closed to what it is that you want to show us through it. Uh, We pray that we would be open to you. Uh, We give you thanks for this morning and thanks for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. 
On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Okay. Wow. Where do we even begin with processing a story like that? Well, I thought we could start with a hypothetical situation. If you emailed me and you said, Pastor, I think God is telling me to kill my child. I keep hearing that I'm supposed to take a knife and drive it through his chest and then burn him up on an altar as an offering to God, I would say to you, God is most definitely not telling you to do that. I wouldn't even pause to consider the alternative. I would be adamant. And if you said, but I hear this voice very clearly, you know, asking me to do this, I would say, I'm sorry, that's not the voice of God. That's either a demon or it's a sign of mental illness. And I really I am going to insist that you check yourself into some sort of facility where you can be evaluated uh, by professionals. And I'm pretty sure that all of you here would agree with my hypothetical response to that situation. Like, imagine you're a pastor of a church and then someone comes to you and says that. That, that would be the appropriate thing to do, right? So I'm not actually worried about any of you feeling compelled to sacrifice your children as an offering to God. That's not something that I'm concerned about. But what I am worried about is that this story will create what's called cognitive dissonance for us. Uh, cognitive dissonance is the discomfort that we feel when there's an inconsistency 
in our beliefs. Like when we say, well, God will never tell you to sacrifice your children, to kill your children, but then that's what he seems to do in this story. If we dwell on that, it creates cognitive dissonance, and cognitive dissonance is difficult to live with. So I have two goals this morning as we look at this text. The first one is to try and alleviate that dissonance that we might be experiencing. I can't resolve it completely. I'm not trying to uh, take the edge completely out of this story. I would never want to do that. Um, but I do think there are some things that we can keep in mind to help alleviate any dissonance we might be experiencing uh, at least a little bit. And uh, my second goal is to identify what we should really learn from this story. This is not a story about how we uh, should sacrifice our children, so what is it a story about? So first, alleviating the dissonance. If you're taking notes, uh, I have four points, and this is the first one. First thing to keep in mind, in the ancient Near East, child sacrifice was a religious practice. Do you notice that when Abraham gets this horrific command, he doesn't fight with God about it, right? Uh, which suggests that for Abraham, the idea of offering up a child as a sacrifice to a god was not something that was unheard of. Now, I don't, I don't want to make it sound like everybody in the ancient Near East was sacrificing their children. If they were, then you wouldn't have a culture for very long, right? Um, but there is a lot of evidence, both from within the Bible, from historical sources outside the Bible, and even from archaeology, uh, that human sacrifice, child sacrifice, especially infant sacrifice, was something that cultures in the ancient Near East practiced as an extreme act of devotion to their deities. And another reason that they would participate in these rituals is because there was this desire to control, right? A desire to control your circumstances. And you would think, well, if we really want protection from our enemies, if we really want to ensure that we're going to have enough food and water in the, you know, in the coming months, then we have to give a sacrifice to the God. We have to appease the God. And what's the biggest sacrifice that you can give a child, right? <clears throat> so this is the world that Abraham is a part of. And this God that he's been following, he doesn't know a lot about this God. This God is new to him, right? This God that's called him out of uh, Babylon and, and has been guiding him and making these promises to him. Um, we have a much fuller revelation of who Yahweh is at this point. But this is new to Abraham, right? And so this is the world that Abraham's a part of, a world where a child sacrifice is a thing. And in that that world, God says to him, take your son and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. And what Abraham would likely hear is something like, perform your culture's most extreme act of religious, of religious devotion, except do it to me. Do it to me. One of the points that I've tried to emphasize uh, several times in this series is that God speaks to Abraham in a way that he can understand which means he uses the cultural forms and expressions that Abraham is used to. You hopefully remember, uh, about a month ago, we looked at the time when Abraham was, was uh, struggling to believe God's promises, and he said, how can I be sure that you're actually going to follow through on your word? And what does God say? God essentially says, well, let's do the ancient Near Eastern covenant-making ritual. And 
that, in that way, you'll really believe me. So God speaks to Abraham in ways that he can understand. He communicates uh, through his cultural uh, forms and expressions. And this time he's saying, show the extent of your devotion to me. So keeping that in mind, I think that's one way to help alleviate any uh, dissonance we might be feeling. God was working with Abraham in a time that's very different from our time and culture right now. And in that time and culture, child sacrifice was a religious practice. Now you might say, okay, all right, well, you're going to have to do better than that. Okay, so stick with me. we got three more, three more points. Second point, child sacrifice is strictly forbidden throughout the rest of the Bible. Strictly for, forbidden. Um, throughout the rest of Scripture, God never calls anyone to offer their children as a sacrifice. And in fact, God repeatedly says how much he hates human sacrifice. In fact, child sacrifice is regularly held up as, as an example of the extraordinary wickedness of the surrounding Canaanite tribes. Okay, Israel is supposed to be different. The surrounding Canaanite tribes, they do wicked stuff like this, but Israel is supposed to be set apart and different. For example, Deuteronomy 12, 30 through 31, uh, God is explaining how Israel's worship should be different from the surrounding nations. And he says, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way, because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. So, what does God really think about child sacrifice? Detestable. He hates it. Another passage that I, I really love this passage. You probably heard it before, but you might not know the full context. Um, another passage that really shows God's heart about this issue is Micah 6, 6 through 8. It says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So these are all the questions, right, that the prophet is asking. Basically, should I do child sacrifice? Is that what you want, God? And look what he says. He answers, he has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So, what does God really want? Does he want child sacrifice? Does he want your, the offering of your firstborn on the altar? No, what he wants is for you to be just, to be merciful, and to walk humbly with him. And those are just two examples of many in Scripture where God expresses his, his heart, or rather his hatred, of this practice. So, third point to help alleviate our dissonance. Abraham assumes that Isaac will be resurrected after the sacrifice. Abraham assumes that Isaac will be resurrected after the sacrifice. Um, you might not have noticed that. And uh, I know it doesn't explicitly say it in the story, but there's a hint. Uh, in verse 5, Abraham says to the servants, he says, we, as in Isaac and I, we will worship, we're going to go to that altar and we're going to worship, 
and then we will come back to you. What? Then we will come back to you. Why would he say that? Now, you might say, well, wasn't Abraham just lying? <laughs> I mean, we know that Abraham can lie. We had a whole sermon about when Abraham lied, right? Um, but I think there's good reason for us to think that Abraham really means what he says here. And the author of Hebrews thought that Abraham meant what he said here. Uh, Hebrews is a book in the New Testament. And look at this passage. It's very interesting. And, and the, the author of Hebrews has, a, I think, a strong argument for why, uh, for why he believes that Abraham thought Isaac would be resurrected. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. See, what the author of Hebrews is recognizing here is that God had said two things to Abraham that seemed contradictory, right? On the one hand, he had promised very clearly that Isaac would be the one through whom the promise would be fulfilled. Like, it's through Isaac that all the descendants are going to come and the great nation is going to be built that's going to bless the whole world. But then on the other hand, he had said, kill Isaac. So, so what the author of Hebrews is recognizing is that if, if Abraham really believed God he would have to believe that even if he slayed Isaac, that wouldn't be the end of Isaac's life, right? Because Isaac still has to be the one through whom all the descendants come. And we see the hint of that in the story, that Abraham had that belief when he says, we will come back to you. Abraham didn't understand how it was going to work out, but he just trusted God's promises have to be fulfilled. So presumably Isaac is going to rise from the dead. And then finally, a fourth point to help alleviate our dissonance is God stops Abraham from going through with it. Hopefully you didn't miss that. <laughs> and it's interesting to think about, well, why does God do that? Why does God stop Abraham from going through with it? Because presumably God could have allowed Abraham to kill Isaac and then raised Isaac from the dead, right? God could do that. Uh, but he doesn't. And the only reason I can think of for why God says, no, stop, don't do it, is because God really doesn't want his people making human sacrifices. Now, God did want Abraham's full trust and obedience. But in stopping him from following through on killing Isaac, I think it was like he was saying, human sacrifice is not how you are going to show your full trust. And obedience. In other nations, this is what they do. This is the supreme test of obedience. But in the new nation that I'm creating through you, it's going to be different, right? Trust and obedience will be valued. They will be critically important, trust and obedience to me, Yahweh. But human sacrifice is not going to be how you're going to express your trust and obedience. Okay, so hopefully those Four points are helpful for us if we are struggling at all with dissonance when we read the story. 
Uh, this story is, should never be used to argue that God approves of human sacrifice or that God is leading us to do violent acts. Um, but now that we have that out of the way, let's ask the question, what does this story teach us? And you know, as I ask that question, I feel overwhelmed because I think, oh my goodness, you could preach a whole series of sermons just on what this story teaches and they'd be challenging sermons, hard sermons. For example, we could have a whole sermon just on the topic of obedience, right? Because this story reminds us very dramatically that God wants us to obey him. Even when obeying him is incredibly hard, even when it seems kind of crazy, we're supposed to obey. So that's a whole sermon in itself, obedience, doing what God wants. Related to that, we could do a whole sermon on how nothing is supposed to be more important to us than God and his will. Nothing's supposed to matter more to us than that. And so if God truly does ask us to give up something, even something we love, we're supposed to be willing to do that because nothing's more important to us than God and his will. And closely related to that, we could have a whole sermon on putting God first, right? on not having any other gods other than God. The pastor and author Tim Keller has this line that I think is, is very challenging and very thought-provoking. I'm still, I'm still thinking about it. He says, um, your God is the one non-negotiable thing in your life. So if you say, I'll follow God as long as I don't have to give up this, it's actually this that's your God not God. It's an interesting thing to think about. And, and he says that this story is a reminder that the one truly non-negotiable thing in our lives is supposed to be God and his will. As hard of, of a message as that is for us to, to hear. You know, we could do a whole sermon from this story just on trusting God. I think that's even primary over the obedience because you can't really obey God until you trust him, right? And in this story, Abraham is empowered to obey because he trusts God so wholeheartedly, right? He trusts that God's promise that he's going to build a nation through Isaac is, can be counted on. And it's that trust that leads him to be willing to obey in this outrageous way. He trusts God, and God commends him for that trust. So all of these could be whole sermons in themselves. They're all important messages. But if I could only preach one message on this passage, I would emphasize something other than these things. These are all really important, but I would pick something else as primary even over these. And the message would be this. God himself will provide the offering. God himself will provide the offering. My hope and prayer is that for the rest of your lives, when you hear this story about Abraham offering Isaac, those words will come into your mind. God himself will provide the offering. Now, what do I mean by that? Why do I say that? Well, remember, there is a question 
that runs throughout this story. And the question is this, how can God fulfill his promise if Abraham obeys his command? How can God fulfill his promise if Abraham obeys his command? Because, in other words, how can Isaac have descendants that turn into a great nation, that's the promise, if Abraham sacrifices him? That's the command. And we've already talked about how we think that Abraham believed that Isaac would be resurrected, and that's the way that God's going to resolve this tension. But regardless of what Abraham thought, that's the question that's running throughout this whole narrative. How is this going to resolve? How, how can this possibly work out? That's the question. And what is the resolution? Well, we might be inclined to say the resolution is God stops Abraham from sacrificing Isaac and leave it at that. And that is part of the resolution, right? God does that, does that. He says, okay, Abraham, you're not going to have to sacrifice Isaac. But what's easy for us to miss is that that's not the whole resolution. The other part is that God provides a substitute. God provides a substitute. Immediately after the angel of the Lord tells Abraham to stop, we're told that Abraham sees a ram in a thicket nearby, right? And he takes the ram, and then he sacrifices it as a burnt offering. And the text is very specific. It says, instead of his son. Those words are very important, instead of his son. Because they remind us that the resolution to this problem that's run throughout this whole story isn't just God saying, eh, change my mind, no sacrifice necessary. The resolution is, don't sacrifice your son Sacrifice this instead, what I am providing instead. And notice, Abraham immediately recognizes that this substitute, it's not just a ram that got lost. It's a provision from God. It's a gift from God. And that's so much so for Abraham that he names the mountain the Lord will provide. Think about that. That's, that's kind of where the story ends, is that Abraham goes through this experience, and then he calls the mountain that he's on, the Lord will provide. I, know, I don't know about you, but if I was Abraham and I was going to name that mountain, I feel like I'd be inclined to name it something else. You know, something like, the Lord didn't make me go through with it. Or, somehow I managed to obey. Right? But instead, Abraham emphasizes that God provided that God provided this substitute sacrifice. That's what left a huge impression on him, and that's what should leave a huge impression on us. See, I don't know about you, but when I read this story, I feel the weight of this call for a sacrifice. Right? A sacrifice has been demanded. A debt must be paid and as we read the details of the story, we feel some of the terrible burden that must have been on Abraham. Right? He has to walk for three days to go to a place to sacrifice the son that he loves. Three days where he has to think about this, what's going to happen. Three days to second guess whether or not he's actually going to do this, right? <laughs> and then we feel pity for poor Isaac when he asks, confused, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And we feel horror as Isaac is bound and the knife is 
raised so that Abraham can slay him. And then we feel immense relief, like waking up from a bad dream. Abraham isn't going to have to provide the sacrifice. Isaac isn't going to have to be the sacrifice because God will provide the sacrifice. And it's that idea that's at the heart of the Christian faith. And yet here it is, all the way back in the beginning of the Bible, right? This idea that God will provide the sacrifice. This idea that there's this unbearable sacrifice that has to be made. This dread that hangs over each one of us. This feeling that a debt needs to be paid. That, you know, we have this burden of sin and death hanging over us. But the good news is that there is immense relief available. Why? Because God will provide the sacrifice. And we know that God has done that because God has provided the sacrifice through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, provided the sacrifice so that we don't have to. I believe that's what the story is really about. That's what it's pointing to. God provided the sacrifice when he suffered and died on the cross. That's what we're going to be remembering this week on Good Friday. We're remembering that God became the ram in the thicket so that we could be spared. And this morning, I want us to be able to recognize that truth and share in Abraham's relief. God has provided the sacrifice. Thank God. Praise God. He has provided the sacrifice. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there's so much power in this story. Power to, power to offend, power to frighten, and yet also power to bring relief and power to bring peace. And Lord, I pray that we'd feel both. I pray that we'd feel the fear, but then we'd feel the relief. Lord, thank you so much for providing the sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen.